It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 258 for September 4th, 2011. Recorded September 1st. Looking at a stack of old vinyl albums several years ago, I decided to start converting them to digital media. So I bought a Newmark turntable. It wasn't outrageously expensive, but it wasn't cheap either. It would be enough, I thought, with a quality cartridge and stylus to convert my albums. I managed to convert maybe half a dozen albums. They were all disappointing. Turntable output is extremely low-level. If you're old enough to remember vinyl, you probably remember that amps had a special phono input. Few amps today have those phono inputs, and I've never seen a phono input on a computer. I had purchased a broadcast quality preamp for the turntable, but even at full gain it produced a weak and anemic signal, and the frequency response made everything sound like a bad AM radio. Apparently, broadcast preamps don't have RIAA frequency modeling. So, the turntable sat around gathering dust until a few weeks ago. I noticed an Applied Research and Technology USB Phono Plus device at B&H Photo Video in New York City. For about $65, the device promised to provide RIAA equalization and a line-level output from a phonograph. In addition to line output, it could send audio direct to the computer via USB. The USB Phono Plus version 2 arrived. I read the instructions, took about three minutes, and started a test. I converted an LP to digital via a Tascam DR07 digital recorder instead of using the direct USB input to audition. The result? Wow! The track sounded great. All signal, no noise. The kind of frequency response I had been hoping for. The unit comes with a power adapter, which I use, although it can be powered via the USB adapter. It is certified to work with Windows 98 SE through Windows XP, but I've had no problems running it with a Windows 7 computer. For the Mac, it will work with operating system as far back as OS 9. That goes back to the late 1990s, so anything from there and above. No special drivers are needed. And yes, that means it will work with any version of USB that you have available. Any version. All the way back to the first commercial version, USB 1.1. The USB Phono Plus has a switchable low-cut filter that's used to eliminate low-frequency noise and mechanical rumble that some direct-drive turntables may exhibit. And, although the audio output is nominally line-level, there's also a plus-minus 10 dB control that allows for fine adjustments. There's a headphone jack. It can be set to monitor input, output, or both. And there's a clipping indicator that ensures the careful user won't overdrive the signal. But then, what do you do? If you recorded the audio directly to an application such as Adobe Audition or to a digital recorder, the result will be one long track for side A and one long track for side B, or if you didn't stop the recording between tracks, just one very long track. That's not probably what you want. Probably you'd like to have each track as a separate file. 
A CD that accompanies the USB Phono Plus provides the free open-source audio editor Audigy, which has a plug-in that separates tracks based on the quiet areas between the tracks. But I encourage you not to use this feature, even if the recording application you own includes it. Stay with me for a moment, and I'll explain why. But let's consider some background information here. No matter what you do or how you do it, the analog-to-digital conversion is a real-time process. That means that if you have an LP with about 48 minutes worth of music on it, you will need about 48 minutes to convert it from analog to digital. If the LP contains 12 tracks, you'll need to identify and name the 12 tracks. Depending on the quality you desire, you may spend some time listening to each track and suppressing whatever noise you find. That could consume as little as 48 minutes, if it's a clean recording, and even less if you scrub through each track, or as much as many hours if it's in bad shape. Dividing the LP's selections into 12 discrete tracks takes about 10 minutes. And that includes naming the tracks, which is something you would need to do even if you used an automatic track separator. If you manually separate the tracks, you'll get it right. Or at least you'll get it the way you want it, even if that's not the way the audio engineer did it. Given the amount of time you'll already be spending on the project, that 10 minutes required to manually separate tracks is time very well spent. Let me explain the process, and you'll see just how simple it is. This is the entire process, beginning to end. I started with an LP from Liberty Records, Original Hits, Volume 7, All-Time Hit Instrumentals. Before starting to record, I cleaned the LP with a Stanton LP cleaning brush, and then I checked the audio levels. Now, ideally, the process should involve listening to the entire record, both sides, to identify the loudest peak on the record, and adjusting for that. Well, I'm not that much of an audiophile, but I did check several tracks to identify what I thought would be the hottest sections. The process is good enough that any clipping in the final recording will be limited to fractions of a second. I can deal with that. Next, I started the recording. When the recording was complete, about 45 minutes later, I copied the one long track from the DR-07 to the computer. At this point, the recording was still in an uncompressed WAV file, 16-bit, 48K sample rate. And unfortunately, here is where the process begins to intimidate some people, but it shouldn't. The average disc jockey at a 250-watt daylight station in Wyoming would be able to do what I'm about to describe, and you probably have more on the ball than that DJ does. All that's involved is identifying the beginnings and endings of each track, selecting and copying each track, pasting each track into a new file, and saving the file. In other words, easy. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see a screenshot of Audition with the first two tracks of the album. The top part of the display shows amplitude. The bottom part shows frequency distribution as a function of volume. Now, don't get scared. You don't really need any of that. All you need to do is look for the blank space between the tracks. The blank space. That's where there's no sound. You want to get rid of that section. Actually, it's not so much of getting rid of that section. What it amounts to is selecting everything from the silence back to the beginning of the track, copying it, pasting it, and saving it. So to save the first track, just place the cursor near the end of the track, select everything back to the beginning, and then cut or copy what you've selected. I choose cut, and I'll tell you why. When I come back to the original file, there's no question about where I need to start for the next track. 
The first track is gone. After I've done the cut, I create a new file, and then I paste the audio into that new file. All that's left then is saving the file, and in saving the file, I need to name it. My naming convention works like this. The side number, the track number, the name of the selection, and the name of the artist. And that's it. You're done with the first track. Repeat that a few times, and you're done with the entire album. Earlier, I said I would prefer not to use the automated process, and here's why. Classical music has a lot of quiet passages, and the automated process almost always cuts a single symphonic movement into many pieces because of this. Not all types of music are subject to these problems, but any selection with more than about one second of near silence will be trimmed into multiple pieces. For this reason alone, I prefer to maintain control. If you're wondering what this sounds like, you'll find on the TechBiter Worldwide website a link to about a 30-second recording of several of the selections, truncated quite a bit, from the record. I'll play it now as part of the podcast, but if you want to hear it full quality, check it out on the website. Top C, Part 2. done. You now have a full quality wave file for every track on the LP. All that's left is the process of exporting MP3 files for whatever player you prefer. Tom Shrella, W8QJF of Westerville, who's been listening since TechBiter Worldwide was Technology Corner, all the way back on WTVN Radio, clued me into Pogo Plug. You can back up and retrieve your files from anywhere, Tom said. What they don't tout is that you can locate the Pogo plug anywhere there's a broadband connection. I'm going to set mine up at a relative's house 60 miles away. This will provide free real-time off-site backups and storage for me and my college-bound daughter. Besides the Pogo plug device, about $99, but available on sale, sometimes $49, occasionally even less, Tom needed an external USB drive. Well, two terabyte drives are now available for less than $100. This is an elegant solution, but there's also a free software-only option. I decided to try that. After installation, Pogo plug scans directories on which you have enabled remote access. The scanning process is particularly interested in photos, it creates thumbnails, in music, it creates artist information along with other metadata, and videos, timelines and thumbnails are created there. Now that process can take a long time. For me, it took nearly a full day. After the initial indexing is complete, adding new files to the Pogo plug index takes only a few seconds. If you have an automatic backup program such as Carbonite, it will also want to backup the newly created index files. I thought about turning that off for a while because PocoPlug could easily re-index the files, but then I decided it's better to backup the index rather than regenerate it in the event of a disk crash. 
You can share files with other users. Any file or files may be shared with any given user or users. And you specify what the other user can do with the files. View or download. In that case, the user can view or stream, if it's a video or audio file, or download it. Or you can give full access. The user can upload, share, download, copy, or delete the file. And even create a new folder in the shared folder or on the shared drive when you've shared a folder or a drive. And there is web view only. This is an option available only with Pogo Plug Business. And the user will have only the ability to view the shared file online. You can have Pogo Plug use a drive letter for each shared drive or folder. This seemed an excessive use of drive letters to me because Microsoft devices are limited to just 24 drives, C through Z. Macs, of course, don't use drive letters, so it doesn't matter for Macs. Pogo Plug devices, that's the $99 solution, can make available to remote users printers that are directly attached or are available on a local network. Pogo Plug software cannot enable this feature, even though the print tab does exist in the preferences dialog. Pogo Plug's active copy feature is supposed to copy files from directories that the user specifies as backup folders to another folder. For example, you might specify a folder on a notebook computer so that any file placed in that folder will be copied to your desktop computer. PogoPlug says that when you create or resume active copy on a folder, the folder will be scanned to see if there are files that need to be copied. After the scan, active copy will duplicate the new file or updated file. On detection, it waits 60 seconds to see if there are any more updates to come and then it begins copying new files to the destination location and overwriting any files with a different size or date. In practice though, this doesn't always seem to work. I can drop a file into the special directory on the notebook. Sometimes the file will be copied, but other times nothing happens. Both computers are on, and 10 minutes or more after I place a file in that special directory on the notebook, backup on the notebook is still shown as enabled and up to date, but the new file is not present on the desktop. So, to be sure that the files you want to be saved to the desktop actually get there, it's a good idea to make a habit of copying them via PogoPlug direct to a folder on the desktop. PogoPlug is available in several versions. Home users will probably want either the free version or the $29 one-time fee premium version. Additionally, there's that Pogo Plug device for $99 and Pogo Plug Business for $299. I expected that I would need the premium version or the Pogo Plug device, but I discovered that the free version provides unlimited private file sharing and the ability to access my shared files from wherever I am from a variety of devices. For $29, I would be able to stream music and videos to a mobile device as well as to an Xbox 360, a PlayStation 3, most media players, and internet-enabled TVs. But my mobile phone is 10 years old. That's because I use it as a phone, and that's it. There's no Xbox or PlayStation around, and no internet-enabled TVs either, so I'm sticking with the free version. The Pogo Plug device does add remote printing, and PogoPlug Business allows that web-only sharing I mentioned. It also provides for multiple users and auditing. The bottom line for PogoPlug, for cats, PogoPlug works just the way you think it should, most of the time. There's no question that PogoPlug would earn a 5-cat rating if the active copy feature worked reliably. 
and I'm pretty sure the company will fix that in the near future. Until then, remember to copy files manually. It isn't difficult to remember. The price is right, whether it's free or paid. And the features you need are there. For more information, visit the Pogo Plug website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, if you ignore social networks, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, MySpace, and things like that, you can no longer claim that you are part of the silent majority. According to the Pew Research Center, half of all adults in the United States say they use social networking. Now, it's worth noting here that Pew's figures are for the entire U.S. population, not just those of us who are online. Not everyone is yet an Internet user. So more than half of all adult Internet users are social network users. This is the sixth year that Pew has conducted this research. In the first survey... Only 5% of Americans said that they used social networking. Younger people, naturally, are more likely to use the services, and frequently they're looking for word-of-mouth or perhaps word-of-mouse recommendations on restaurants, automobiles, vacation destinations, things like that. And during difficult times, such as last weekend's hurricane along the East Coast, the various social media were instrumental in providing information before, during, and after the event. Nearly 90% of women age 18 to 29 use social networking sites frequently. About 70% say they use them daily. Pew says that income and education, two indicators that frequently modify usage of most products and services, had little bearing on this research. Twitter continues to be the weakest of the social networking sites, possibly because of the difficulty of sharing coherent thoughts in 140 characters. The past sentence had 175 characters. Only about 13% of people who are online use Twitter, and most of those use it on smartphones instead of computers. Pew says that 61% of Internet users check email daily, 59% search for something daily, 43% use it for social networking every day. According to After Dawn, David Stebbins of Harrison, Arkansas, claims that Google owes him $500 billion because it failed to cancel his YouTube account. Stebbins previously claimed that Walmart owed him $600 billion because the company responded to an email he sent them. Stebbins apparently has a somewhat unusual concept of the terms of service under which people use online services. Terms of service, or TOS, are written by service providers, Google in this case, and the user either accepts them or doesn't use the service. Stebbins says that he changed the agreement, and now Google owes him a lot of money. After Dawn puts it this way, Stebbins claims to have amended YouTube's terms of service, requiring them to either terminate his account within 30 days or pay him $500 billion. He says those same terms of service allow him to do so, and he quotes paragraph B, section 1, that says the terms may be unilaterally modified at any time. If the other party does not wish to accept the new terms, they may sever the contractual relationship. On March 20, 2011, I took YouTube up on its generous offer and sent them an email announcing my own modifications to the YouTube Terms of Service. It will be interesting to see how this plays out in court. Google, of course, considers unilaterally to refer only to Google, but the agreement doesn't actually say that. 
The case will be heard in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California. And if you'd like to see the entire motion, there is a link to it on the After Dawn website from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.